0: And thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, episode 426, Kill or Be Killed. Last time, Lord Mountbatten had taken over combined operations and strung together a few raids. Not that all were successful, but it was a learn-as-you-go process, and Mountbatten was learning that he had to ask for almost everything. Indeed, combined operations didn't even have its own spies. Spies. But Dickey was working on that. Of course, being an outsider, he sought outsiders to handle the role of spying. Not that the military branches took this seriously. But at least Dicky had five channel ferries when they were in short supply. If Chief of Army Staff General George Marshall had had the necessary number of ships in 1942, he may have tried to cross the channel then. It's fortunate for tens of thousands of men, he did not. But at least Dickey had control of the commando units of the Special Service Brigade and the combined training centers that trained for amphibious operations. Though, as the raids grew in size, regular troops would be needed. Thus, regular troops were asked to volunteer. The commando basic training center, a few miles from Ben Nevis in the western highlands of Scotland, would see some 25,000 men from many different nationalities try to go through and then wish they hadn't. It seemed as if the place was only designed to inflict pain, but better pain now and learn how to deal with it than experiencing it for the first time in the field. For some, this was how their first morning at the training center went. The men were taken out on a whaler on the lock side. Then a sergeant said, Well, you all said you can swim, so jump overboard and swim back to shore. The men looked at each other, unsure, as they had all their equipment with them. But when it looked as if the sergeant, an imposing physical specimen, might start picking them up and throwing them over, the men went over the side on their own imperative. When not freeze-swimming, there were 14-mile speed marches to be completed in two hours. But they all had to cross the line together. They had to do everything together to look out for one another, which actually helped morale. Just after that speed march, they had to form up in parade ground order and then shoot down all the metal targets on the range. Only then were they allowed to return to their huts, where they probably had a hard think about, was this actually a good idea? For those that made it through the course by the end, well, they were as deadly as Rambo in the woods, could swim like Aquaman, shoot like Deadeye, and blow things up by sneaking up on a target with explosives, like the most deadly and permanent game of tag known to man. The training period ended with an opposed landing exercise with real bullets. By the time all was said and done, some 40 men were dead. The instructors only replied with, well, this is a deadly business. The bodies were sent back home, of course. But the road that led to the living quarters, really just huts for the men, had wooden crosses along the way. But instead of names, those had to be kept secret, the how or why each man died was inscribed. For example, this man stood on a skyline, or this man looked over cover, not around it. Then there were those that simply raised their heads too high during live fire exercises. In 1942, the Allies might have been short on landing craft, but the British did not have that problem when it came to plans for raids. Problem was, they were all over the place. Small destructive raids, larger ones where armor would be landed, and everything in between. Fortunately, most of those never left the page. And yet, there was one common theme through them all. Everyone was ready to hit the enemy on the mainland. Still, the plans came and the plans went. The smaller proposed operations had a better chance of success, but would probably make little impact. As for the larger operations, they were tempered by a lack of resources, small desire to stick one's neck out politically, and everyone's favorite game of finding a way for the services to work together without fights actually breaking out before the shoreline was reached. But the biggest obstacle of all was Commander of Home Forces, General Sir Bernard Padgett. During the Great War, his left arm was left all but shattered, which may have contributed to his less-than-inviting personality. Every time someone came up with the plan, he eviscerated it. Basically, he was a massive pain in the backside. But he wasn't wrong. He was using military logic, but others seemed to be accessing a crystal ball. Here's where it all began to fall apart. Paget's reasoning was correct, and other conventional military minds saw the rightness of his thinking, but not combined operations, for they were the opposite of convention. A compromise seemed to be one operation a month, or thereabouts, and the raids could and would get bigger as more landing craft became available. As for the month of June, Dieppe was chosen. Why? Because it was reachable. And seemingly unrelated, Operation Sledgehammer stayed on the table as a viable option, at the very least for political reasons. To show the other two allies, Britain was in this till the end. Still, early in 1942, the raids got underway, and more than a few of them would be done near Norway. The hope was Hitler would see these raids as a precursor to landing troops there, and as such, he may move more men into that area hopefully again from the Eastern Front. Hence, the raiding, again, was underway. We've already seen Operation Claymore, which hit the Lofoten Islands, and not only retrieved Enigma material, but also German POWs. This had been in March of '41. Next came a raid against Rommel, or rather his forces, at Bardia, located about 50 miles or 80 kilometers east of Tobruk. Rommel had just retaken Cyrenaica, and someone, or something, needed to slow down his progress, so commandos were sent in. They managed to bomb a bridge and burn a tire dump, but most importantly, lessons were learned for future operations. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. On June 9th, 1941, Number 11 Commando was told to hold the Kazmiye Bridge just 50 miles or 80 kilometers south of Beirut in Vichy-controlled Syria. The 21st Australian Infantry Brigade was on its way, and the bridge had to be held for them to cross. Yet Vichy forces destroyed the bridge just as the 21st was coming upon it. The commandos there had fought valiantly, but they were overpowered. Still, the Australians built a pontoon bridge and were able to keep going. But many commandos died during the operation. Some were captured, but more lessons were learned. The next raid started on November 14, 1941, and was to see the capture, or kidnapping, if you will, of Rommel himself. The Desert Fox was holding Cyrenaica, and Tobruk was under siege. Churchill wanted Auchinleck to do something quick-smart, so Operation Crusader was drawn up. But first, the Middle East commandos were told to raid the area just before Crusader was launched, while another commando group would hit Rommel's headquarters. The first group, it has to be said, was mostly killed or captured. As for the second group, they achieved surprise, but then were surprised themselves. When Rommel wasn't there, he was currently in Rome. All had gone right with the planning except that the intelligence did not know of the German general's latest whereabouts. It was called Operation Flipper. More loss of life, more lessons learned. Next came Operation Inklet on December 26, 1941. In truth, this was a diversion for a larger attack at Vaxo, about 300 miles or 482 kilometers to the south along Norway's coast. The 300 men from No. 12 Commando landed on the Lofoten Islands without meeting resistance. However, as they were almost spooked by a German bomber, clearly, in future operations, fighter cover would be preferred. The commandos were led by Lt. Col. S.S. Harrison and had the help of the Royal Norwegian Army. In short, this was a proper raid, with German prisoners taken, along with a few Quislings that is, collaborators, and two radio transmitters were smashed. Thus would communications of the enemy's navy be affected for a while in the area. Even better, the commandos found out that after the first Lufthansa raid in March of 1941, Berlin had moved significant troops and planes to Norway, as it may be the starting point of a large Allied invasion. And to help that fear, French chocolates and cigarettes were taken from the German POWs and passed out to the locals, thereby engendering even more loyalty. This time, no commandos were lost. As for the larger raid, Churchill's idea, or hope, was to weaken the German naval presence in the area to help the convoys trying to get to Murmansk. This raid, labeled Operation Archery, was carried out by members of No. 3 Commando with some more from No. 2 and No. 4 Commando and, again, some Norwegian troops. This started just after the mentioned Operation Anklet. The idea was to have that raid go first, draw the Germans' attention further north, to allow this attack on the enemy's positions on the islands Vaxo and Maloy, just off Norway's coast. And learning from Operation Archery, this air raid had cover before the sun rose on december twenty seventh a naval bombardment went well against Vaxo, but less so against Molloy. still on Molloy, three of the four coastal guns were wrecked, but that one remaining gun had to be dealt with up close. Yet waiting for the commandos as they went ashore at seven a m within the small town of Malloy was a unit of German mountain troops who had fought on the eastern Front besides which this unit contained a few excellent snipers. What should have been a quick but deadly in-and-out turned into an eight-hour house-to-house fighting. The good news was that the locals helped carry ammunition and the wounded back to the coast. The bad news was that the commando leader, John Dunford Slater, watched as men right next to him, one by one, were killed by a sniper. Maybe more than one sniper. Clearly, the Allied troops were tied down by these snipers. Something had to give, and this is where their outside-the-box thinking kicked in. On Dunford's signal, everyone fired at the small building the sniper or snipers were in. While this was being done, fire was set to the building. Within minutes, the structure was ablaze. Nothing could have survived that. By 2 o'clock, the attackers were starting to pull back to their boats. The results were solid. While the commandos lost 17 killed, with another 53 wounded, and the Norwegian company lost their leader, Captain Martin Linge, the Germans lost 120 killed and 98 captured, along with a German naval code book. And as the British Army, Navy, and RAF had been involved, this was the first true tri-service operation, which the Allies would learn in time was the most efficient and successful way to fight. Meanwhile, the RAF had lost a total of eight bowfighters and Blenheims, whereas the Germans lost zero planes. However, Hitler would divert another 30,000 troops to Norway, becoming more convinced that it would soon be the doorway the Allies would use to land on the continent. But the commandos weren't the only ones fighting the good fight. As the Battle of Britain had intensified, the wizards contributed their might with radar. Indeed, it's not a cheery thought to think of that prolonged air battle without the defenders having a way to see what enemy planes were coming at them, how many, and in what direction. It was the tech that allowed them to husband and focus their planes, thus always being ready to respond. Of course, the Germans had their own version of radar, but as combined operations were expected to hit the coastline, as a build-up to the cross-channel invasion, London needed something to counter the enemy's technology. Soon, the Battle of the Beams had begun, but as the current underdog, the British needed to know what the enemy had to help counter it. Thus, Dr. R. V. Jones of the Air Staff asked for captured German equipment, which is when the British 1st Airborne Division, newly created, stepped forward. Low-altitude reconnaissance photos showed a newly installed Wurzburg, or Early Warning Radar, stationed near the village of Bruneval near Le Havre in Normandy, France. As there was a beach nearby, Dr. Jones asked if someone could pop over and bring back the device, or at least a piece of it. Dickey said yes to this. He hardly said no to such requests but this time the beach would be used as an exit not an entrance for that paratroops would be used led by squadron leader charles pickard so men of the first airborne division would drop in and men from number 12 commando would be on the beach to help the raiders leave that way as for those that were dropped in about 120 men mostly scottish they were led by major john frost But these men were not privy to what they would be doing, not at first. Originally, they were told that they were to demonstrate the technique and abilities of the commandos by raiding a supposed German headquarters. The Scots were dropped in three groups on the night of February 27, 1942. It's fortuitous that their training had been so intense as one section was dropped about a mile and a half from their target but by double-timing it, they were soon in position. Fortunately, the large house next to the radar equipment only had one German on the second floor. And yet, as the section under Flight Lieutenant Sergeant Cox, who was no commando but was knowledgeable about radar, started disassembling the apparatus, heavy enemy fire came from some woods about 300 yards away. Then, it got worse for the raiders as German vehicles with larger guns and mortar capability closed in. But it was at that moment another section of the commandos rushed in and pushed the Germans back or killed them where they were. But disaster was still possible, as contact could not be made with the landing craft as of 2.15 a.m., so several red lights were fired into the air. Of course, the Germans saw this and sent in reinforcements, but so too did the Royal Navy. Soon, three LCAs, or Landing Craft Assault, came ashore and picked up the men. Not able to help himself, one of the rescued soldiers said, God bless the ready Navy, sir. At 3 a.m., the Allies were gone, having grabbed the Würzburg radar components for the price of two men killed and six missing. Combined operations was getting its act together, which only left a few more raids before Operation Sledgehammer was activated, and the next operation would be Chariot. The target this time was the German battleship Tirpitz, the ship that kept Churchill up at night as it and others raided the convoys trying to resupply the home island. In early January 1942, the Tirpitz left the Baltic and went north to Trondheim, almost halfway up the Norwegian coast. The point is, after some work, she would be ready to head for the Atlantic and add on to the staggering convoy tonnage lost by the Allies. On the destruction of this formidable battleship, Churchill and Admiral Tovey, the C&C home fleet, were of one mind, Tirpitz had to go. So, soon thereafter, four bombing attempts were made. London, for its pains, had just lost 12 aircraft. The Germans, well, they still had their battleship. But the Germans needed a dry dock facility touching the Atlantic before the battleship could properly go out on the hunt. And the only one capable was at St. Nazaire on France's west coast. Enter Captain Charles Lamb of the Royal Navy who had an idea, an idea that he took to Lord Mountbatten. The problem, alas, was that the outer harbor and basin were within an area less than one square mile. Translated, that meant a narrow window of opportunity and access with many, many guns all around it. No ship was getting in, or rather all on board would be dead or wounded if they actually made it. But this was one time that geography would benefit the British. After much studying of the area, including French nautical charts that went back 100 years, a shallow drought vessel during high tide should be able to cross the mud flats and shoals, normally not accessible by large ships. Thus, a plan was worked out, and it was simple, but audacious. The HMS Campbelltown, A destroyer would be filled with explosives, but there would be well-shielded compartments within it where troops were stationed. The ship would head in at speed and ram the outer gate of the dry dock, smashing it open. Then the troops inside would disembark and hide in a nearby air raid shelter. There they would wait for the next part of the operation. Just after the destroyer crashed into the gate, opening it up, a motor torpedo boat would speed past and launch torpedoes into the dry dock at the inner gate on the other side. With this done, when the tide went out, the pens for the submarines would be damaged. But those torpedoes would go off later. For now, after the motor torpedo boat got its job done, the troops would emerge and cause as much damage as they could to the surrounding facilities. With this done, motor launches would come in, pick up the raiders, and get out. And to give the greatest chance of success, learned from previous operations, there would be an air umbrella over the entire operation. The fleet left Falmouth, Cornwall, at 3 p.m. on March 26, 1942. When they were near Uchon, close by Brest in northwest France, they came upon a U-boat, Not needing this delay, the British motor gunboat 314 attacked and damaged the German vessel to the point that it had to depart. As the U-boat was not destroyed, the British then pretended to head in another direction, which the Germans reported to headquarters. As expected, five German torpedo boats soon departed St. Nazir, but went in the wrong direction. So far, so good. Getting closer to their target at midnight on March 27th, a diversionary bombing raid was launched close by. But as there were clouds, the targets were missed, which actually caused the occupiers, the Germans, to go on high alert versus hunkering down. The fleet, not knowing this, sailed on, using German flags to add a layer of confusion, which worked for a while. The destroyer Campbelltown crept closer, but soon was spotted and the searchlights came on. However, the Germans held their fire, again due to the flags. But now that the fleet was closer and the game was afoot, the German flags were taken down, replaced by white ensigns. Now the shore batteries opened up. The fleet still had 15 minutes of sailing to go. By the time they got closer, half of the men on the motor launches were dead or wounded. Once the Campbelltown, a Lend-Lease destroyer, formerly the USS Buchanan, cleared the estuary, it picked up speed. The Germans kept firing, and only two motor launches dropped off their troops. With commandos now on shore, gunfire started up. But it was worth it. At 2.34 a.m., now March 28th, the Campbelltown rammed the dock gates, They were four minutes behind schedule, and considering the resistance, it was best not to wait. Still, the first gate was opened, which allowed the Motor Torpedo Boat 74 to launch her torpedoes and hit the gate at the other end of the dry dock. But, and this is important, those torpedoes had been modified not to go off. Not just yet. The men who had been on the Campbelltown, who had recently departed, now got on Motor Gunboat 314. Meanwhile, Captain Ryder, the commanding officer of the naval forces, saw that the now-ruined Campbelltown was sinking and embedded in the lock gate. But, as more and more men and smaller ships were hit by German fire, Ryder decided to withdraw at 2.30 a.m. Motor Torpedo Boat 74, having done her job, turned for home, and she fared a little better than most of her doomed sisters. But German fire did manage to kill all but three of her 34 passengers. But it was about to get worse. Those five German torpedo boats were returning from their wild goose chase, and they ran into what remained of the British fleet. When the shooting stopped, only four of the 18 smaller vessels made it home. Fortunately, many of the men on those vessels were able to transfer to other ships before being destroyed or before they were forced to scuttle. But the thing was, the explosives aboard the Campbelltown had still yet to go off. That was by design. When the explosives did detonate at noon that day of March 28th, there were 40 German officers aboard her, with another 400 troops nearby. All were instantly killed, and the dock gate was ruined to the point that it would not be repaired until after the war. Back to the torpedoes submerged and missed in all of this action, when they did explode during the evening of the 29th, there were more German casualties. Unfortunately, the Germans were spooked by this, and as they did not know about the delayed fuses, started shooting at French civilians, thinking the saboteurs were still around. The Tirpitz would never leave Norwegian waters, as there was no safe place for her to berth along the Atlantic coast. But success had come at a high price. Of the 241 commandos involved, 59 were killed or missing, and another 109 were captured. Also, 85 Royal Navy sailors were killed or missing, along with another 20 captured. And finally, of those that made it home, many of them were wounded. The after-action report showed that the bombing diversion had actually hurt the assault rather than help it. Another lesson learned at a horrid price. Combined operations, or rather Dickey, went into defense mode. Blame was thrown around, but the destruction of the dry dock allowed combined operations to feel good about what they were doing. The next month's raid was supposed to be Operation Myrmidon, an attack on an area in southwest France, to disrupt road and rail transport between France and Spain. Commandos from Numbers 1 and 6 Commando, with one and a half Royal Marine battalions, boarded the Queen Emma and Princess Beatrix. But it was not to be. The ships sailed around the coast of France for a month, pretending to be Spanish merchant ships, before making their move. Only on April 5th did the lead ship head towards the estuary to unload troops, but it hit an unexpected sandbar. Between this and the bad weather, the raid was called off. The Dieppe Raid, which was to come five months later, could claim to have a solid chance of success, given all that had been learned by these raids. Further, the branches were starting to learn to work together, which was the only way to fight the experienced, professional, and motivated Germans. Still, Operation Jubilee, as it would be called, would have its own series of miscues, resulting in the death of thousands of Allied troops, with not much to show for it. And as hard as Lord Mountbatten had worked during his time at combined operations, his efforts after Jubilee's failure would see him strive even harder to rewrite the narrative and clear his name. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So I just want to say hi to some new members and those that donated. On a side note, when you think life can't get worse, it always can. For the last three weeks, we have had no air conditioning. Um, so it's been fun. Uh, we've just been going around strangers' house pretending to uh, want to talk to them just so we could be in their air conditioning. No, not really, but we're thinking about it. Uh, we're supposed to get it fixed soon, but hey, caserah. sera, sera. So anyway, so the new, sorry, I don't know why I told you that, uh, because it's been our lives for the last three weeks. It's dominated our lives for the last three weeks. So anyways, as far as new members go, sorry about that rant, uh, there's Mark Buckland from Victoria, Australia. Hello, Mark. Thank you. And Nicholas Abbott from Shoreline, Washington State. So thank you very much, Nick, if I may. Nikki. Uh, And as far as donations, I would like to thank Sarah Brugnoli. Sarah, I hope I got that right. Uh, Thank you, everybody. I really do appreciate it. Um, So, yeah, so next time we'll just jump into the raid itself, finish that off, and head back to the Eastern Front, and we will just take it from there. Uh, Hopefully, fortune or fate continues to smile down on you with the gift of air conditioning. Take care, everyone.